Let's turn now in our confession to chapter 21, paragraph 3. Chapter 21, paragraph 3. And then if you have a Bible, let's read Romans 6 again together. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. It's amazing how often this passage of Scripture is referenced in our confession, especially with regard to Christian living and, and sanctification. As uh, some would say, this chapter is probably one of the foremost uh, important chapters in all of Scripture with regard to the doctrine of sanctification and uh, the Christian life, what it means to actually be a Christian and how sanctification flows from who we are as believers, obviously over against trying to obtain salvation by actions. Romans 6, beginning in verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were baptized, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And now I want to read this paragraph from the Confession. Paragraph 3. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust, as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction, so they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Let's pray and ask the Lord to teach us this evening. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for 
this blessed doctrine of sanctification, and we have to we have to confess and seek forgiveness and and true repentance from the times when we have ventured into sin, even after having been born again by your Spirit, Lord, we find ourselves still sinners and still struggling with the passions and the lusts of our flesh. And we know that your word says this will be a battle until our flesh is in the ground. And so we we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your help. We ask that you would strengthen us in our inner being according to your word. And Lord, teach us this evening. If there might be somebody here who's maybe this past week or maybe in the week to come is going to be tempted to to take this doctrine of Christian liberty and abuse it. Lord, I pray that you would use this short lesson as a, a barb in their minds to prick their conscience and to rescue them from sin. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I've entitled this, this final lesson on this last paragraph, the abuse of Christian liberty. And, and it is going to be, I think, hopefully, shorter than some of the last ones that we've had. And I do appreciate your patience. I know these last ones have been a little bit longer than even I like to, to have. But we've been talking about the doctrine of Christian liberty, and we've seen that the liberties that have been won for us by Christ and in Christ Jesus are, are not simply great blessings, they are the blessing of salvation. The whole biblical narrative is the idea that man has been, because of his sin, cut off from God, and and in itself that is bondage and slavery. And that what Christ has done is, is redeemed us to bring us back to the true liberty of the sons of God, to live in a way that God has created us and designed us to live, as we heard this morning from Psalm 119, the idea of of keeping God's law. That's a freedom that has been given to the sons of God in Christ Jesus, as well as all all the other blessings of our salvation from the ramifications and penalties of sin. So this is not just a great blessing, but it is the blessing of salvation. And just as with any other blessing that's bestowed upon fallen men, there's always a potential to abuse the blessings of God. Now, what we have to be careful with, and I'll conclude with this as well, is that just because we see fallen men, and even in ourselves, abusing the blessings of God, that doesn't mean that we then turn on God and refuse His blessings. We acknowledge and understand our tendency to abuse these blessings, but then we work towards being brought back to that scriptural, uh, God-given middle of the road where we are receiving the blessings of God and stewarding them in the way that God intends for us to steward them. But there's always this potential for these blessings to be abused. As a matter of fact, what most of us know of the doctrine of Christian liberty, most of our interaction, if you ever hear somebody you throw out the phrase Christian liberty, most of what we understand is going to be often in terms of its abuse. Now throughout history, we've seen that when a doctrine is cheapened by abuse... Those who want to preserve the doctrine will very often swing to a far extreme on the other side and actually, again, abuse the doctrine in their own way. And so in order to avoid that, and I think the the men who put together our confession have done a good job by giving the bulk of the ink to the positive aspects of, of this Christian liberty, the true 
aspects of this doctrine and only briefly dealing with the abuses of it. I think that's a, a, a safe way to approach these matters. And we have to be careful in our own generation. We can't inadvertently swing to such an extreme that the realities of paragraph 1 actually become practically lost, even though we might still confess them as we try to attempt to preserve the truth. When I, when I thought about this, what came to mind was the Amish. You know, they have a, a practical doctrine that is a biblical doctrine, that we ought to be separate from the world. Come out and be separate. Well, they have that doctrine, but in order to preserve the, the separate, the line of separation, well, you step two feet over here. Don't get too close to that line. Well, two feet, I don't know if that's far away enough. Well, let's move this far, this far, this far. Now, there's nothing wrong with living like the Amish. But what begins to happen over time is the doctrine begins to be transformed so that if you don't look like this and live like this, well, then you're proving that you're not a believer. This actually begins to define what makes you right with God. That's, that's what we can do. We can swing to another extreme and lose the whole doctrine. We don't want to do that. We have to always be careful of that. And the doctrine of Christian liberty is often abused, both by the lost who know enough about Christian doctrine to, to be dangerous, and it's abused by true Christians. Anytime we choose to serve our corrupt flesh rather than God, we're abusing this doctrine, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. And so in this final paragraph we see the awful reality of abusing Christian liberty and what happens when it is abused. The first thing we see is the abuser described. The abuser is anyone who abuses the doctrine or the reality of Christian liberty. Now, why do I break that up between the doctrine and the liberty? Well, because some people, they don't have the liberty themselves. They are not true Christians. But again, they know enough about the doctrine to at least grab the lingo and use it. There are other people who are true Christians. They are actually free in Christ, but in their corrupt flesh, they will still abuse the doctrine. So it can go both ways. The confession says or describes the abuser this way, they who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust. Now the word pretense means a superficial or insincere claim laid upon a condition in order to achieve some means which require that condition to be met. So, so the pretense of Christian liberty would be to claim the doctrine, to claim some truth of the substance of Christian liberty, but do so insincerely so that you can enjoy some supposed benefit of actually having that liberty. And this happens whenever people use the language of liberty to justify their actions. For example, just to use the language that was used back in that first paragraph, we know that we've been in Christ freed from the guilt of sin. Now you might hear somebody say, well, my conscience is clear and so... And they'll proceed to do something that might be contrary to Scripture. But they use that, they throw out that language. Since my conscience is clear, well, their conscience may not actually be clear or they might have a, a wounded conscience or even a seared conscience... But they want, they want this idea. They want to let you know, well, I don't feel all that guilty, so therefore it must be okay for me to do this. And if it's not okay, then, then as I proceed, the Lord will, will jump in my path and He'll stop me. They're, they're abusing the doctrine of Christian liberty. 
We know that we've been freed in Christ from the condemning wrath of God. So you might hear somebody say, well, I know I'm a child of God, and so... And then they proceed to act in a certain way. They use that statement, that thought, to defend their action. We've been freed from the rigor and curse of the law. And so you might hear somebody say, well, I'm not under the law, I'm under grace. And so, and then they'll act a certain way. They, they use that to defend their actions. We've been delivered from this present evil age. And you might hear people who, who say, well, I've been born again. And so they, they justify their action. And I've, I've mentioned before, there, there was a, a movement historically, not terribly long ago, they called it the born-again movement. You'll meet a lot of people who are still alive today who will say, well, I'm a born-again Christian, just because that phrase came to sort of uh, define a, an evangelical, was a born-again, even though they couldn't explain what regeneration is to save their life. But they'll throw that out, I'm a born-again Christian. And then they'll defend their actions that way. We, we've been freed from everlasting damnation. We know that. So somebody might say, well, I'm not going to go to hell for A, B, or C. This little action, God wouldn't send me to hell for that. And so they use that to defend why it's okay for them to, to move forward with that action. You've heard people say things like this, and maybe you've even said them or thought them yourself. In the back of your mind, when you're tempted to some sin, you think, well, I'm justified in Christ. And, and I could never lose that. And therefore, even if I do go on with this, I can't lose my salvation. What you've just done is abused Christian liberty. When this kind of language is employed, immediately the doctrine of Christian liberty has been brought into the equation. Immediately God's work of salvation is being used as leverage for something. You're using the things of God for something else. Now if this kind of language is insincere or false, you've ventured upon Pretense. You're abusing the great salvation provided in Christ for yourself. You've, you've essentially taken God's name in vain. You've taken God's name as a banner. You lift that banner up and you plant that over whatever your action is in order to somehow bring some divine pleasure or blessing upon your actions. It's like you, you're waving around a backstage pass with God's name on it. It's okay, I can do this. And you use the doctrine of Christian liberty to defend it. This would be the, the abuser. And the issue at stake here is ultimately sin. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust. The abuser of Christian liberty is the one who uses the doctrine, its language, its ideas, and really ultimately God Himself as a means to practice some sin or to go on cherishing any sinful lust. In other words, they say, well, because of my liberty, I will do this or that sin. I'll go on with this way of thinking that is actually contrary to Scripture, but they, say, they think, well, I'm free to do that because, well, I'm not really, I'm not going to be punished in hell for it. Again, they believe that they're truly converted. Very often we do this again, we who are converted whenever we venture into sin. The individual takes shelter behind the doctrine of Christian liberty in order to sin. And we have to keep in mind that sin is not simply glaring, public, indecent acts that are clearly contrary to nature. Sin is much more broad and much deeper than that. Several texts that we often 
run to in, in trying to define sin. 1 John 3, 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sin, of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Anything that you do that is contrary to the law of God, that is a sin. So anyone who upon pretense of Christian liberty goes on in any way against God's law, they are abusing Christian liberty. 1 John 5, 17, All wrongdoing is sin. Who defines wrong? God defines wrong. Who defines right? God defines right. James 4, 17, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. These, we call this sins of omission. I know I ought to do this, but I'm not going to do it for whatever reason. You use the doctrine of Christian liberty. Well, well God's not going to send me to hell because of this. or Well, it's not required of me to, to earn my salvation to carry out that particular thing, and so I'll just, I'll just hang back. Not doing what you know you ought to do. Romans 14, 23, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Venturing upon some action that you can't run to the Word of God and in your conscience with the Word of God say, I believe that I am acting in full reliance upon God and obedience to His Word. If you can't act that way, you've ventured, you've, you've sinned against God. 1 Corinthians 8, 10-12 If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Remember that a clear conscience is a conscience that is bound by God. A conscience that is clear before God. And very often, though our conscience might be clear with regard to a particular action, the, the acting upon that or the carrying out of that action might offend the conscience of a weaker brother. And if I know that and I say, well, I know that this is not really that big of a deal and so I do it and carelessly wound my brother's conscience, I've sinned against him. All of these things, and there are more, but all of these things fall into the category of sin. All of them have external applications that men can see. All of them have internal applications in our own hearts that no one can see but God. That's sin. Anyone who upon pretense of liberty do practice any sin, are, they are abusing this liberty. Now, does this mean that those who are living under the true doctrine of Christian liberty and the liberty won by Christ, will be sinless. No. Notice the confession does use this phrase, practice any sin. To practice sin is to make it a habitual way of life. It's what is meant by texts like 1 John 3, 6. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. In other words, these texts, the, the idea is not that we should expect sinless perfection, but that once a person is truly born again, they don't continue in the habitual practice of known sins. The practice of sin. So the abuser of Christian liberty is one who waves around the notion of Christian liberty in order to justify the fact that they continue practicing sin rather than what they ought to do is when confronted or when convicted, confessing that sin and seeking a true spirit-wrought repentance where they're turning from the sin. That's the way a Christian responds to sins. 
But there's another level to this. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust. To cherish is to treat with tenderness and affection. To foster, to indulge and encourage a sinful lust. What is a sinful lust? Well, in Scripture, a lust is synonymous with a passion, a craving, or a desire. And lusts, if we just wanted to take a, a, a concordance and look up the terms that are used for lust and translated as lust, they go a lot of different ways and they're not always bad. For example, Luke twenty two fifteen, He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, if we just used another translation of similar terms here, we, we could say Christ said, I have lusted with lust to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's clearly not a, a sinful lust, but it was a, a craving, a desire that He had. That's a lust. A lust is a craving or a desire. They're not always sinful, but usually our, our English translators will translate the word lust or passion in order to let us know we're not dealing with something that is appropriate. That's why the confession, I think, uses this qualifier, sinful lust. A sinful lust is a craving or a desire within that fits into the mold of those passages I just read which define sin. So a sinful lust would be a craving in you that's contrary to the law of God. A sinful lust would be a craving to avoid what you know is the right thing to do, but inside of you, you just you don't really want to do it. You want to do something else. That's a sinful lust. A craving to act outside of the bounds of faith. Can you do that thing in faith? Well, I don't know. I just want to do it. Well, what, is this, what, what do the Scriptures say? Well, they say a thing, to here, here or there, a thing or two here or there, but I just want to do it. You're not acting in faith. You have a desire in you to really act the way you want to act regardless of what the Scriptures teach. This would be a craving to act in any way that avoids being sensitive to the faith of another. These are sinful lusts, cravings that we have. We could add some to these in, in Mark 4.19. Our Lord says, "...the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts for other things..." Just other things. But notice how it says it. "...other things enter in and choke the Word." and it proves unfruitful. A sinful lust could be any craving or desire in you that for whatever reason begins to choke out the Word of God so that it becomes unfruitful. Galatians 5.16 Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the lusts of the flesh. The lusts of the flesh are contrary to the Spirit as we heard in, in that portion of, of Galatians. These lusts or cravings are proof that sin and corruption doesn't always manifest itself in ways that other people can see. It can be a lust inside of you, a desire inside of you. Remember that sin is rooted in our nature and our corrupt flesh retains these lusts even though our hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's the war. So to cherish a sinful lust is to notice 
one of these remnants of corruption remaining in your members, some lust. It's contrary to the will of God, contrary to the law of God. And when you notice it, you, you treat it with, with tenderness and affection. Rather than dealing with it like you would deal with a black widow spider dangling from the rearview mirror in your car, you treat it like a, a newborn kitten that just wandered across the road into your yard. You coddle it. You pet it. You get defensive. Oh, come here. Come here. Are you okay? Are you hungry? Can I get you something? You use the doctrine of liberty to justify why you aren't erratically swatting and smashing as if your life depended on it. Oh, it's just a, that's just a little craving inside of me. That's just a lust. I'm not acting upon it. It's not that big of a deal. No one sees it. I've got this, this urge to do this or this urge to avoid that. Well, that's not that big of a deal. It's okay. That's cherishing a sinful lust. You're fostering it. You're allowing it to be there. You're indulging it. You're encouraging it. It's like looking at weeds and saying, well, I'm just going to let them stay there. They'll be okay. No, they're going to get taller. They're going to continue to grow. You don't have to feed them. They're going to get what they want. They're going to live. So to cherish this is to use, to cherish these sinful lusts is to use biblical ideas like justification in order to defend your lust. Well, I'm, I'm righteous based on the righteousness of Christ alone. So therefore, I'm not really feeling the urgency to deal with this or that lust or sin. Paul said in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its lusts. Obviously, he's not talking about the flesh with regard to your physical body, uh, the, the things that you need to survive. He's not saying stop eating. He's talking about that flesh which is at war with the spirit, the, the corruption within you. He says, starve it. Don't feed it. He doesn't say, we don't want to get too extreme. No, he says, starve it. Get extreme. One of the, the, the practical uses of things like fasting, starving or, or going without to produce an effect upon your physical flesh is so that you can pray and seek the Lord to, to rid your corruption, your corrupt flesh of these cravings, these lusts, and to bring them before the Lord. So there, there is sometimes a, <clears throat> a parallel in the way these things work together. Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, "...put off your old self." which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts. The ESV translates the word sometimes desire or passions. I'm just going to say the word lust every time. <clears throat> James 1, 14 and 15. This is interesting. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own lust. Then lust, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin... And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 2 Peter 1.4 refers to the corruption that is in the world because of sinful lust. Why is there corruption in the world? Sinful lust. Lust in who? People, individuals. So this abuser of Christian liberty takes the objective realities of salvation won by Christ for the believer and uses them like tickets at the fair. I'm going to trade you this so that I can do that. I'm going to give you this so that I can do that. Trading them off one by one to satisfy their own desires so that they can continue to live in a way that is contrary to Scripture, contrary to the Spirit of God. They, they continue living according to the cravings of their sinful flesh. 
These people, like Paul said of, of those in Crete, they're, they're, they're gluttons, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. What's the point? They just live to satisfy their belly, just stuff the flesh. The, the point was not they ate too much. The point was they said, I want it, I'm eating it. I want this, I'm doing it. I feel this, I'm doing it. I like this, I'm doing it. They, they lived to gratify themselves. That, that, that's the problem. And so these people, these, these abusers of Christian liberty, and we do this when we, when we venture into sin, we're taking a doctrine of God and using it to justify our sinfulness. It's wicked. So what is the end that's achieved? What actually happens when this doctrine is abused? I think sometimes we treat the doctrine of Christian liberty in the same way that we treat the substance of Christian liberty. In other words, we tend to think that the way that a person handles Christian liberty is a matter of Christian liberty. So the ramifications might not be that bad. Well, this person, they, they venture on this particular sin and, and I venture on this particular sin. It's, it's really not that big of a deal because well, Christian liberty, you know, it comes in the latter portion of the confession. It's, it's not a, a salvific doctrine. Well, I think it's, it's actually the opposite just like those who swing to the far extreme to preserve the doctrine, those who abuse it actually rob it of all of its true force. Now, why is it? Even though the reality of our liberty has been objectively won for us by Christ, and thus is a, a matter of justification, or falls into the category of justification with regard to sin, in, other, in regard to salvation. In other words, this is something that has been won for us objectively by Christ, outside of us. He wins this liberty. The practical application of the matter is the entire Christian life, just like salvation. I mean, just like justification. If you've been justified by God in Christ... That has an effect on the rest of your living. It's not just this compartmentalized doctrine. It's the same with Christian liberty. It affects the entirety of the Christian life, which falls under the category of sanctification. Since true justification and true sanctification are intimately connected with one another, if we neutralize the power of sanctification, the outworking of our liberty, we actually will begin to tear down the objective realities of our salvation. It, in other words, it's a big deal. When you begin to distort Christian liberty, and this has been, throughout history, has been um, dealt with by the church many times as various groups come in and they begin to say, well, we're, we're free to do this and we're free to do this and we're free to do this. Because men recognize when you begin to venture outside of God's Word and use your liberty to justify sin, what you're doing is destroying the very bedrock of what salvation is. It is to pervert salvation. For those who abuse Christian liberty, first they distort the grace of God. Notice the great irony. People will claim the grace of God as their ticket to distort God's grace. Confession says, as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction. They, thereby, that is by using this doctrine as an excuse to continue in a sin or to abstain from what they know they ought to be doing. And we, could, we can open up that all night if we wanted to. What, what is sanctification? 
What are the means of grace? What has God given to His people in order to be sanctified and to grow? Those are things we ought to be doing, right? Sanctification. Things God has given. The means of grace. Well, I know I ought to be doing that, but I'm going to hold back a little bit. I know I ought to spend time in the Word, but, well, I'm rushed for time and, well, I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ anyway, so it's not really going to affect my life. Sins of omission count as well. When people do that, when we do that, we pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel. Remember that grace is a work of God Himself in the soul. Grace is not an ideological rug under which we can sweep our sins so that God doesn't see them. Nor is grace a get-out-of-jail-free card that we show to God every time we sin to remind Him, I'm justified, you can't do anything. Remember grace. That's not what grace is. Grace is God at work in us, producing fruits, bestowing gifts, and increasing us in those gifts. That's what grace does. Grace is the power of God by which we cease from sin and walk in righteousness. That's grace. And so when we use the grace of God as an excuse for why grace is not doing what grace does, we're actually pitting God against God. It's exactly what Adam did in the garden. This woman you gave me, this gift that you gave to me for my good, I didn't do my job, and therefore it's not my fault that I sinned. What's he saying? God, it's your fault. You did this. We're we're pitting God against God. Pitting grace against grace. And this is where the confession takes us to Romans 6. Verses 1 and 2 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, Notice there is a question that's asked. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then it's answered in the strongest negative, by no means. And then there's an explanation and a defense of that answer rooted in our very nature as saints of God. Christians are described as we who died to sin. How can we who died to sin... You're a Christian. What are you? You are those who died to sin. That's your nature in Christ. In in verse 5, we're those who were united with Christ in a death like His. United with Him in His death. An objective reality. He died by faith. We're united to Him. His death is made over to us. A Christian is by nature one who has died to sin. We are unresponsive and unaffected by the power of sin according to our new nature in Christ. That's a Christian, dead to sin. So then to continue in sin is contrary to our nature in Christ. We've been crucified with Christ so that, to use His language, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. What's the body of sin? It's our mortal body, our flesh. This is the the great war. We've been regenerated inside. The outside, the flesh is wasting away. This is going to get put in the ground, only to be brought back in the future. But right now, we've got a new inner man walking and living in an old flesh. And there's this war. 
Corruption remains in our mortal flesh, and this is why our lusts are something that have to be mortified. Well, I, I want this. Well, that doesn't matter. You've got to stop wanting that. Cut it out. Our lusts have to be mortified. And as saints of God, we are the only ones who can actually mortify the lusts. Why? Because we're under the reign of grace. And that section leads to verse 14, the famous text. We're not under the law, but under grace. We, we are not subject to a powerless letter, but we are subject to omnipotent grace by which we can live contrary to the lust of the flesh. In other words, grace is a power in us. It's God in us by which we're strengthened to walk in righteousness. Like David, he was strengthened in his God. What was that? That was grace at work in the man David. It was God Himself by His Spirit. So to walk in unrighteousness and use grace as the excuse is, the, is to completely pervert the design of grace. That's the opposite of grace. That's why I think it's important that we, 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 we get clear on the definition of grace, that we challenge misuses and abuses of the word grace. Because a lot of people have been told for a long time, well, grace is the unmerited favor of God. You know, God looking at me from heaven and He's happy when He looks at me. If you read the Scriptures, that definition doesn't fit a lot of places. Grace is an active power of God in us. If, if, you've, got, if you've got grace, you're, you're advancing. You're growing. Only those who have the grace will be growing. Those who are not growing, not advancing, not, not gifted, not growing in their gifts, they're lacking grace. They're lack, lacking the life of God in their soul. That's to pervert the design of grace, which is to increase our holiness. Secondly, and this is just logical from the first one, those who abuse Christian liberty in this way wholly destroy the end or the goal of Christian liberty. To use liberty from sin as the justification for continuing in sin is to prove that you're not actually free from the power of sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various lusts and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Notice how he phrases that. We were once slaves to all of these various lusts. That's not us any longer. Very similar to, to Paul's, and such were some of you. You used to be a slave to lust, but as a believer, you're not a slave to your lust anymore. We're not slaves to sin anymore. And so to use Christian liberty as a cover-up to gratify lust, to gratify flesh, is the exact opposite of liberty. To say your freedom from the power of sin is the reason why you're allowed to go on in sin is utterly irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Anytime you abuse one thing in order to advance the cause of another thing, you show that the second issue is more important to you than the one you abused. As an illustration, if I slice my hand open, smashing out the window of my house to get my family out of it because it's on fire, I have just shown my family is more value, valuable to me than my hand, which I don't typically use to smash out windows. 
But because I was willing to, quote, abuse it in that situation I just showed, that my family was more important to me than my hand. In the same way, to use salvation and the liberty that's won for us by Christ as a means to justify sin is to prove that that particular sin or that particular lust is more important to you than Christ Himself. You're willing that He be abused so that your flesh doesn't go unpampered. And so you, 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 you wield the liberty card. You, you wield the salvation of God in Christ as a means to sin. And that is to destroy Christian liberty and the end of Christian liberty because the liberty of Christ is to the very opposite. It's to get us away from sin. So the paragraph closes by reminding us what exactly is the end goal of this liberty of ours. It talks about the, the end of liberty which is, or the goal of Christian liberty which is, that being delivered out of the hands of all of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. So notice the paragraph closes with that, that from and unto paradigm that we began with. We've been delivered from the hands of all our enemies. The effects and ramifications of our own sins, separation from God because of our own sins, alienation from our fellow man because of our own sins, the power of the devil which is because of our own sins as we saw this morning. We've been set free from all our enemies and we've been delivered unto serving the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Now, when it says without fear, obviously it's not talking about the godly fear that's granted to us in the covenant of grace. It's talking about a slavish and servile fear, a fear of condemnation. This is an amazing thing. As believers, we have been set free by Christ to serve God, knowing full well our service is incomplete, undeserving, We'll never attain to what it ought to be, and yet we can run headlong into it knowing that God is pleased in Christ with our service. We're free. He's pleased with it, even though it's imperfect. Why? We've been set free from the rigor and curse of the law. He no longer demands perfection or He strikes us dead. No, He says, you've come to me in my Son. You're serving me in a love for my Son. I'll, I'll accept that. He's pleased with it. We do not need to sin. We do not need to gratify our lusts. We're not enslaved to sin and its consequences anymore because of what Christ has done. As Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin or, or reckon yourselves dead to sin. And, and this is the, the, the work of the Christian. This is the mind work. You don't believe you're dead to sin. And, and Paul knew that that's the struggle. If you've been crucified with Christ, you're dead to sin. Well, I just keep on sinning. I don't understand the problem. Well, you've got to reckon yourself dead to sin. You're dead to sin. Well, I, I feel this, this urge. No, you don't have to do that. You're dead to it. You don't have to satisfy that. But we, what do we do? We go on in sin feeling like, well, I've just got to do it. No, you don't. You don't have to. We're free from that. And we're freed so that we can serve the Lord. Now, I love the way that the, the references that the confession uses here sort of bring this thing together. 
The first one is Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The language of the confession says that we might serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Serve the Lord. The first scripture reference, Galatians 5.13 says that we might serve one another. How does that go together? How do those things work together? The, The service is corporate. We serve the Lord by serving one another. And then verse 14 of that that portion says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When we love and serve the saints of Christ, we are serving Him. Remember, whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name, remember that, he will receive a prophet's reward. When we love Him and love His bride, the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So serve one another. Don't serve yourself. Serve one another. I'm going to harp on the, the, beat the drum of the church again. Where, where is the place where we have a great opportunity where everybody can get together and say, Today, I'm not going to serve myself. I'm going to serve others. The church is, 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 the, is the, the place where we do that. The place where it begins to be unfolded. And then the next reference gives us sort of the horrible backside of that same truth, and that is when people abuse liberty in order to harm the saints of God. 2 Peter 2, verse 18 and verse 21. Verse 18 says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. That's what these people are doing. They, they have... They're enticing the lusts of others. And then verse 21 says, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. In other words, these abusers were enticing the lusts of others and drawing them away. Another reminder that the church is a dangerous place to be. Because there are those who will come into the ranks of the church. They learn some doctrines. They learn some words. They learn some phrases. They put it all together. They begin to sound very intelligent. And then they will use what they've learned to entice with the sound of doctrine the lusts of other people's flesh. They'll begin to tell them, well, you know, if you really study out this doctrine, it's actually acceptable for you to do this or that or or." whatever, avoid some commandment of some sort. They, they draw weaker brethren away into sin. And Peter says, it would have been better if they had not known the way of righteousness. In other words, it would have been better if they never showed up. Now, why is that? Because Christ said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We use our Christian liberties to serve the sheep of Christ, not entice them and draw them away from Christ. It would be better to die than to be found poaching Christ's sheep. So as we move forward in our confession, and this is a conclusion, 
move forward in our confession and go about our lives seeking a pattern of God-centered living, our duty and our freedom is obedience to God without fear, in holiness and righteousness before Him all the days of our lives. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. We will give an account for whether or not we obeyed God. We will not answer for the outcome or the fruit of our labors. God produces the fruit. We will not answer for the ills of society at large. We will answer, I will answer for my lawlessness. We will answer for our own sins of omission. We will answer for our own failure to walk in faith. Our own actions which did not consider the consciences of weaker brothers and sisters. We'll we'll give an account for those things. Of whether or not we obeyed God. Why? Because we've been set free to obey God. We have no excuse. We've been set free by Christ from condemnation. We can serve God with joy. We can run headlong into unfettered pursuit of godliness in every area of life. We can run into service of one another. You don't have to worry about serving anybody in this congregation too much. You don't have to worry about loving too much. Christ is not going to say, calm down now, calm down. You're loving too much. You're serving too much. You're being too much of a blessing to my people. You're helping my people. He's not going to say that. You've been set free to do that, to obey Him and to serve Him. Let's not allow the potential abuses of Christian liberty to rob us of the blessings of true liberty. Let's pray.